five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. As I've been on travel, this week we're presenting another Future in Space Operations talk by Dan Lopez, Chief Business Officer of Arcasys. The title of Dan's talk is Driving the Next Silk Road in Space, the Arcasys Port Architecture. Now, the one thing you need to remember about these Future in Space Operation presentations is that you'll sometimes get ideas that are in the very early stages of development. That's the case with the Port Architecture by Arcasys. While the idea appear, appears sound, the business case is ongoing. So Dan will introduce the product and their plans. The company is less than two years old, but has garnered enough support, including from the US Department of Defense Defense Innovation Unit, that they are preparing for an on-orbit demo. Listen in. Well, good afternoon, uh, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm Dan Lopez again. I'm the uh, Chief Business Officer for Arcasys. Um, we're building, I think, something very, very special. Um, it's a little bit of a departure from, uh, we all love astronauts. They're, they're amazing, uh, pinnacle human endeavor, but uh, we think that space must scale far beyond human uh, involvement. Um, and how do we set the, the, the wheels in motion? And how do we instantiate that? It, it's uh, one thing to dream, uh, but how do we put and the paper and actually build something um, that we think can scale to uh, football field size things overnight or even larger uh, in, the, in the near future. One thing I do want to uh, remind everyone, um, this slide deck and some of the content is not necessarily ITAR restricted, uh, but it is um, falling under restrictions stated in an agreement between Arcasys and the U.S. government. So um, please do reference that. If you do have any questions, feel free to reach out to Dan Lesser or myself directly, and I can uh, help uh, steer you in the right place. So let's go on to slide two. The vision of Arcasys is really to establish a analogous to seaport that en enable commerce worldwide um, and the scale of commerce worldwide um, harkening back to hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, but do this off-world, that in concert, it provides a combined GDP, uh, measurable GDP of the globe, uh, unrestricted by earthbound constraints and physics. Um, next slide. Many of our, uh, this is slide three, uh, many of our earliest uh, involvement with innovations um, from the, the, the first uh, uh, industrial uh, innovation cycles from the 1700s on forward have been in these waves. Um, but what happens is from each wave to wave, there's um, a, a, a lull uh, in a matter of moment of stasis. Uh, and then there's a, a burgeoning moment and a cycle that comes back down as well. But uh, we are now approaching uh, the convergence um, of, of all of these different things that have come from the first uh, through five waves of innovation to something that I think is really special. Uh, we're, we're starting to understand how to become better stewards of our planet, really understand our places in the cosmos at the same time. And my involvement um, with different te technologies and organizations is um, by far and beyond matched, if not more so with my colleagues at Arcasys to put our gray matter to look about how we might utilize these um, innovation uh, cycles to transform what we think is the next wave of the space industry. So slide four. In the same manner of these different um, rises and troughs um, of innovation, we see similar patterns happening. We have the first wave where many of the initial space endeavors were so costly that they had to be um, 
uh, driven by nation states. And then we had satellite communications come on, um, and then the co cooperative uh, multilateral uh, arrangements between uh, nation states and the building of uh, huge things in space, uh, whether it's the ISS, which I had uh, the pleasure of working with um, a few years, as well as all of the other things that we've done uh, now with the Hubble, Chandra, and Mars activities that we see and inspire all of us. Uh, but, but now you can see where commercial low-Earth orbit uh, operations are starting to play a part. Our Planet Lab, um, SpaceX, Rocket Lab, all of these different um, scenarios are starting to um, not only mature, but pay dividends. Uh, for the investments that uh, uh, had come before. Uh, when we start looking at the next wave, the things that we're kind of in the moment right now, and we're, we're essentially in the moment of an inflection point, where we see companies like Momentus going public. We see um, a few other companies coming online uh, that are bringing atomic energy uh, even to propulsion. With all of these things that uh, we can now go to the next, or if not last mile within the Earth's orbit, we can then start to look at the next wave of commercial innovations beyond Earth's region. Uh, next slide, slide five. So what Arcasis is actually building is something we call the port. And the port, the name um, is really to provide an immediate analogy to ports on Earth, where commerce can be conducted, new services can arise, uh, goods and Question services can be onboarded or, or offloaded. Um, and we can actually then provide a no. platform that can – is someone – can someone go on mute? Um, I have a so question to continue, about We have uh, the first fully automated platform that's designed to grow robotically um, and yes. enables things to come and go, uh, including uh, arrivals and departures of spacecraft and other payloads to assemble new and novel uh, payloads and spacecraft Nine, built at 25. the port. Nine. Hey, Dan. Hey, Dan, yeah. someone's trying to ask a question. Well, Some, well someone is uh, needing they, to unmute. Yeah, they weren't doing a very good job, so I, I couldn't hear them, so I just muted them. And they can unmute themselves or we'll unmute them at the end. Yeah, go, go ahead, Dan. Okay, Great. thanks. Thanks, thanks all. Um, so the, the business model of the port is really to create uh, ongoing uh, leasing at the port of specific types of payloads or the idea of where you can – Test, deploy, uh, test and build, and then deploy your technology, but with the opportunity to lease back that to not only your own customers, but um, Arcus's customers uh, as well. We, we find that the ability to build things and then release them as non-return, which means they don't leave the port and come back, but they leave the port uh, and do whatever they need to do for the, their, the life of their mission or their objectives is uh, a, a pretty profound shift in how to do business in space. Slide six. So what's different really about the port? What the port module is, is this hexagonal shaped uh, little spacecraft that could, it's about two meters uh, in diameter, a little over two meters in diameter, but in a, a meter tall, but what it is is a scalable, low-cost CapEx um, spacecraft that, that can grow and scale and move. Um, we also built a universal data translator that is essentially like a USB, but for payloads, so that we can plug and play different payloads into our architecture and not really know much about or, or really care about what's going on with the innards of that payload or spacecraft, but that we can uh, translate data, electrical data, mechanical, and even thermal uh, across our interface. 
We've built a robotic arm that can walk. Imagine a robotic arm that has two hands instead of just one, and it can attach and detach from uh, different interfaces that allows the thing, as the sport grows, the robotic arm, one or more of the arms can move around the, the substrate of the, the port. So what we also provide is the ability, as I mentioned before, is to license payloads or to license uh, your payload back to your own customers or to the architecture that is underneath the hood of uh, the port. Imagine something akin to, say, Amazon Web Services, where you can deploy your own technology, you can sell it to your customers, you can also sell it over to and lease it uh, in concert with AWS, and they can sell it into their marketplace as well. Slide seven. Here's a great example and illustration of what we're talking about when we talk about scale. Now, each side of the port module is a free flyer. So we have six sides that can come and go, but each side itself can be sent up to the port as resupply and build novel uh, structures. The free flyer can also then take things to its last mile, uh, such as payloads or things that need to be inserted into specific uh, orbital logistics. We can do that from um, our cutter spacecraft, which is one of the, the port's wedges, as we call it. But you can see where this is uh, based around the concept of a structural uh, component of a ESPA ring, and that ESPA class uh, configuration will then uh, build upon itself and create large structures very quickly. Five, eight. So again, the analogy here with a port is building an ecosystem that has specific um, components of how to deal with commerce. And so arrival of, of vessels to robotic manipulation, to building new products and services, and then the release and transport of those products and services into their specific end destinations. That is really what we're building here. Um, and currently, trade on Earth on the, on the, the, the open ocean is trillions of dollars. And it's marked by um, measurable uh, fraction of GDP per nation that's involved with those uh, activities. The same thing is going to unfold with the port and other like and complementary technologies that go to space, both for uh, access to space and then orbital assembly, configuration, and capabilities for launching into other destinations. Next slide. Uh, slide number nine. What we've also had to do is consider things that we would have to necessarily pay for in the economics of building something like this. And building something that scales very quickly, we have to account for how do we get things to specific orbits uh, and to our port. Um, we, we built something that works uh, with all of the major launch providers because of our form factor is based on an ESPA ring. And from orbit to orbit, we've worked on interfaces that work with other providers that have uh, OTV um, capabilities, orbital transport vehicle capabilities. Um, and to do those types of activities, we've also had to dog food that as well. So there may be other places that the port needs to go that are outside the confines of providers that go from ground to orbit and orbit to orbit, we might have to go other places and other destinations. And we so we've built in propulsive capabilities into our architecture as well to take us uh, outside the confines of Earth. Slide 10. If you look at our uh, business case here is, again, what I mentioned earlier in the, the call, uh, the convergence of many different things that are happening is what we're about to see. And um, this is not far into the future. This is uh, starting to unfold now. So where we look at LEO 
and then into Neo and Geo ports. Those are destinations that are focused on Earth missions or Earth-focused business models. Um, those markets are uh, able to be rapidly tested, validated, and then put into operation, and as quickly as 90 days. So if someone comes to Arcasys and says, we'd like to put something up in space and at the port, or utilize the port to send something somewhere else into uh, orbit, we can do that within 90 days. Um, our space missions, where it's going to be uh, going from geo or beyond into lunar orbit, those uh, new markets and new frontiers will start to be unlocked. Um, and then we progress into planetary destinations that are outside of our lunar and Earth uh, confines. Slide 11. So again, I look at three different ways um, to slice and dice our business model. We're driven by, again, services or infrastructure as a service in orbit. Um, we allow you to lease onboard hardware, host your technology as uh, technology um, and payload uh, services. Uh, backhaul services are also part of that as well to get your data down. And then we also provide a facility in which we can burst or have things docked with the port and provide new functionality, servicing, refueling, those types of things at the port. We also have uh, the concept of space-to-space -space missions where we can configure and build new satellites at the port and then release them. And this first uh, instantiation of that is a, a leasing of port sat is what we call them. The port sat would be released from the port module and it would return after it needs to um, uh, after its mission uh, to the port. The other is uh, building something custom uh, at the port and releasing it, and that's your satellite. That is your mission, and that is um, not going to come back to the port. The, those two things combined, the Earth-focused missions and the space-to-space -space missions, require something uh, that is unique. And into the, the, the near future, we're going to be able to assemble and build unique things, large infrastructure, small infrastructure, launching things from the port, those are what we envision as the output of these two uh, buckets of, of mission focus. Slide 12. Now again, our onboarding process is very tailored towards getting you from zero to full throttle and into space in 90 days. We have built a digital twin for the port that allows us to uh, initially do um, some feasibility assessments, um, customize the interaction with the port, and then build a on-the-ground simulation utilizing that uh, digital twin. And then we can get into um, how we are going to put you on the port itself. You get the operator's manual, essentially. You get put on a manifest, and off you go. Um, and that is... Uh, Ultimately, our uh, our goal is to get you 90 days to space or less at some point when more rocket launch capabilities come online. Uh, we do have question. a mission management. Yes. Yeah, uh, on this particular slide, I think 90 days or less is an admirable and a great goal. But in, in the real world, in terms of accomplishing it, uh, do you know of a different FAA than I do? Uh, ha ha. Yes. Uh, um, these are things that you address we would that? be towards. <laughs> yes. So one of the things that we'd like to be doing is uh, sending up specific types of logistics that are routinely brought to the port, but not necessarily having to go through specific um, approvals on the ground. We, we, we do the configuration and management um, of the operations when we build something novel at the port, that would be something that we can even streamline it faster than 90 days. Um, but the FAA and, and NOAA, uh, we were, we're working with NOAA specifically on this topic um, because I, we think that this is a critical element of building scale and not only for uh, national uh, security issues, but also economic power projection as well. Um, and the, the government is, is inclined to listen to that um, in, in more ways than one. Okay, good answer. As far as I can Thank go you. on this call. Yeah. 
No, good answer. If you want to follow up on that offline, I'm happy to talk, but it's just not on open channel. Um, now, going to slide 13, we do have something called the Harbor Master. Um, the Harbor Master is a combination of uh, front-end uh, management tools like a GUI to uh, create your uh, ordering to feasibility, and then uh, we respond, our, our team responds with an assessment, and we generate quotes, and it's all underneath um, our platform to do that. But it, it also, um, by doing those feasibility studies, we have to engage one with our digital twin, and then with in later down the road when we're up in space, we have to deal with what's at the port and um, look at scheduling, which becomes much more dynamic and complex over time. So what we built is Harbor Master Autonomous Agents, which are, that's a very fancy term for artificial intelligence. We, we're building um, uh, neural networks to consistently and uh, robustly monitor and adjust our feasibility in real time, even with no human intervention. Um, and so that is something that is uh, converting science fiction into reality. Um, and then we're really excited about those specifics um, that will come to bear pretty soon. We'll be more public about that. Uh, slide 14. Now, to accomplish all these things, we've created um, a, a convergence of a bunch of different types of interfaces. We've down-selected from, I don't know, I'd say 30-odd interfaces. We've done, we did a study with um, some of our uh, initial uh, DOD engagements um, to look at all of the world's interfaces, and we down-selected the two. We utilized those for specific reasons, and then we built something internally called the applique, and the applique provides the universal translation between anything on the outside to anything on the inside in our subsystem. And we have actually then taken those interfaces and our applique and commanded and controlled that with our digital twin with real live payloads in real time, utilizing the internet as a proxy. And when we did this, this was a fascinating uh, example of what happens when uh, connectivity to what you're seeing goes down, but the, the, the robotics and all of the automation has to still continue. Zoom crashed on us, uh, but the, the simulation still continued and the robotics did what they were supposed to do over large distances. So we went from New Zealand all the way to Germany in one uh, demo you know, for a couple hours. It was, it was uh, awesome. So uh, on slide 15, you'll see uh, the combination of, of these two interfaces uh, in a little bit more detail. Um, but again, there's the concept of active uh, uh, interfaces and then the idea of uh, passive interfaces. And what we think will scale is also the idea of a combination of a non-ITAR applique and a non-ITAR passive interface. Ship those around the world and you can interact with the port in any kind of form factor you are, as long as we know how to deal with that um, interface. And so we're working towards that end is to open uh, the gates there a little bit more as we come uh, to launching our first spacecraft. Slide 16. One of the things that you, you must be guessing at this point is with all of these different uh, payloads and operations and different things that are coming going from the port, how do we keep one payload secure from another payload or some data secure from another? It's the same concept as if I go onto AWS and I were to see all of Dan Lester's uh, account and all of his resources that he utilizes, not only mine, but his as well, I wouldn't use that uh, facility. Neither would he. That would be insecure. That would not um, bode well for a business model. So what we've done is created a concept of enclave, where specific types of resources from communications to uh, onboard processing, uh, data capture and handling and store and forward to uh, interfacing with the actual hardware is 
in a process of escalating in a kernel, byte OS, that uh, allows us to do these things um, in a manner that is secure end-to-end. Um, and we're trying to get into uh, a manner of operating that shifts from uh, the way we used to have a trusted environment to a trustless environment. And having a trustless environment, that means the people or the things that need to communicate when they need to communicate and how they need to communicate have to do it in ways that are much more encapsulated and secure than the way we used to do things. And this is one of the other IP elements that we've uh, created uh, around enclaving, which allows us for that escalation in security. Uh, slide 17, please. Now, to convert uh, pen to paper to something real, this is our protocol unit that we built here in California and Pasadena. Uh, this is real interfaces, real um, uh, engagement that we utilize a motive robotic arm to bolt onto it, and we utilize another company's, uh, you can see Exospace, um, there as well as a, one of our partners provided computer vision for commanding and controlling and looking at the robotic manipulation in real time. Uh, one of the other things we did is an approach where we simulated on a sled the approach of a, uh, a spacecraft uh, rendezvousing and docking with support um, in that interface that you see here in the center of the port wedge. Next slide, slide 18. How to build to scale. How do we build that Silk Road? The, the, the thing that scales our commerce is the network of many ports. It would be foolish to think that we can conduct global commerce with only one port. So we think that we build something that is scalable, modular, not only from a technical aspect, but also from a business aspect. There are things that are coming online from a launch logistics perspective that allows us to send not just one spacecraft, but many of them all at once. And this allows us to create a very, very quick rollout of our conceptual model for doing business in space. So we, we've right-sized our, our, our spacecraft to fit within the fairing of, of, of SpaceX launch but as things come online that um, allow us to shoot not only maybe three of these, but we could ship up 10 at a time. And this will put us on par with building something much faster, much more scalable and resilient, both from a business perspective and a, a security perspective uh, with our architecture. Uh, slide 19, please. I'm not going to go into the details here, um, but the Visiting Vessel Handbook has been released. It is available um, on our website as well. If you would like it um, and you can't find it on our website, uh, feel free to reach out after this call um, and we can uh, have you uh, request the Visiting Vessel Handbook. It is our notion of operations at the port, providing some sort of specifications around onboarding, docking, berthing, uh, and arrivals and departures. It is not to be deemed as standards by any means, but it is the way we think that um, operations at the port might set the tone for others to follow suit. Slide 20, please. Our five-year notional plan to scale the business is quickly coming. Um, so if you can see where we, per launch, we, we start with one module, then we start with uh, another module, and we have a wedge that connects the two. And then as we look at um, a, a major launch after, we look at sustainability of a, a, a module that has also um, the ability to be refueled or other capabilities that uh, provide something that takes us much farther away from Earth, much faster. And that is post-2027. We're looking at building something that is not decades away, not another ISS or not another um, uh, manned spacecraft, um, but a place in which we can 
utilize space resources, expand our knowledge, and expand away from Earth very quickly. Our customer base and the use cases have aligned to uh, slide 21 into a series of different use cases that are coming up uh, with us on our first uh, deployment. And so this says 2022. This is correct in, in which we're starting to onboard these uh, use cases and, and customer base. We will be launching some of our first opportunities into 2023 into space. And um, you can look at slide 22, please. Uh, these are some of our growing partnerships uh, around conducting business at the port. Again, there are facilities for us to think about working with space agencies, uh, ministries, and de uh, defense departments around the world um, in an in a open manner, uh, as well as getting things to and from the port. You can see where we're working not with just one, but many different providers. And then also OCV visiting vessels that will take things from Earth and put them on the port. Um, there's many different providers of that coming online as well. Slide 23. So you can see where our roadmap, our technical and business roadmap, has uh, been taking form for a little bit of time now. Uh, we're into our year and a half or two um, of uh, getting up and running. Uh, our protocol unit has been completed. We're utilizing it um, on a routine basis. We are going to be looking at our Pathfinder mission to build an ESPA structure um, into the coming months and then commercial operations into 2023. Beyond 2023, we're going to be scaling operations, as I had mentioned on slide 20, a notional idea of how we are going to launch additional port modules and resources to build our first multi-modular port in space. Slide 24. So in, in closing and in summary, we would like to build the first space outpost for assembly, integration, and resupply uh, that empowers the entire Earth and all of its markets to go quickly beyond Earth to lunar orbits, to Mars orbits, and even beyond that. We'd like to enable the ability for even some kid in their grandma's basement to rapidly prototype test and deploy new technologies and bring those market segments to space as quickly as 90 days. Um, we'd also like to provide a streamlined and ubiquitous access, as I mentioned, to anyone who doesn't necessarily even have to have experience with space or wealth to be able to get to, to scale a business in space. And with that, I'll close. Thanks, for, thanks a bunch for having me, and I'll open it up for questions for a little bit. And uh, that's it. Dan, you did not disappoint. This is Dallas. Uh, excellent presentation, excellent overview. Um, and as moderator, uh, I've got a couple of questions for you. Sure. So uh, my interpretation from what you said uh, says that a customer of yours, of the port, can either be a wedge or an attachment to the wedge. Is that correct? It can be a wedge. It can be uh, utilizing a custom wedge. It could be taking the wedge and payloads to the port, assembling something at the port on that wedge, deploying it. We could launch a CubeSat from our uh, – we have a launcher capability from right. our port. Uh, so you could – be brought up in a launcher, you know, uh, we typically would have seen something like that with like Exospace or, um, or Exolaunch, I'm sorry, uh, being bolted onto a Esper ring for shared right. um, logistics. We would be able to do things like that, but insert you into novel areas that you wouldn't be able to do that with uh, just, a, uh, just a off the shelf um, shared logistics. And, so, and great, great. Yeah, go ahead. And then my second question, you have a visiting vehicles guide, but do you have a user's guide or a customer's guide? Yes and yes. And that's why we have to build um, an autonomous uh, series of neural networks, but an autonomous agent that allows us to look at scheduling because every surface will have visiting vessel capability. Every, every surface will have uh, 
uh, payloads that can be stationed there for remote sensing to telecommunications or prototyping, testing, and deployment. But you might have to be moved. So uh, if we move the payloads, we might have to um, do that and recalibrate where new visiting vessels would be. Do, does that make sense? So all in all, we, yeah. we have about uh, 60, 60 interfaces, uh, but because of different sizes and shapes, we can't utilize all 60 interfaces all at once. Um, right. so, hopefully that makes sense. So as a potential customer, I'm really asking about max mass or dimensions that one could put on your port. Uh, we, we do have some upper bounds. We don't have any really lower bounds, um, but we do have some upper bounds um, just because of the size right now. It's going to be about two, a little over two meters um, uh, wide and a, a little over a meter tall. Uh, with things moving around and our, the, the amount of propulsion we have, um, yeah. we're not going to be able to handle too big of things, but... Um, we have to conserve some momentum, and, and momentum is a consumable. Um, so the larger you get, we could account for some things, um, but it just really depends. And, and our chief engineer can actually run some simulations and tell you um, based on your sizing. So if you want to take specifics offline, we can actually do that. Okay, thanks, thanks. I'll, op I'll allow others to ask questions. Go ahead. Sure. Oh, yeah, Dan, this is Dan Lester. That's a really fascinating stuff. I, I w would really be nice to have some specific examples of, of what you can manage to do with, you know, ESPA-class payloads. Um, I think on one of the slides uh, where you had customers signed up, you know, you were talking about some stuff like manipulation and build, orbital debris capture. What is your port going to do for orbital debris capture, and how will it do it? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me, and I love that question because what it really allows me to do is go back to some more concrete um, visuals that everyone can really understand. So when I talk about, say, what can you do at the port, um, it's very hard for us to say these are the only things you can, we, we wouldn't want to build something that we, that you can only do these three things. We're here for orbital debris mitigation, or um, we're here to build a space station that people live in or anything like that. Um, what we really want to focus on is the concept of, say, services uh, that you can tap into and combine as almost like recombinant DNA. You can combine different elements of it to pull off either current use cases or novel use cases we can't even dream of right now. Um, it's very similar to say, if you go to Amazon Web Services and, and what Amazon responds to that question and says, you can only do these three things, no one would use that. Um, and it would be very difficult for Amazon to say, these are all of the things that you can do. Um, how could they imagine Snapchat or TikTok or Netflix? Um, where Netflix drives, most, most of their infrastructure is still on top of Amazon. Now, AWS, would, that would be a full Darren for uh, AWS to say you can only do these things. But what we are building are atomic units. You recombine these atomic units to create uh, the things that make sense for your business. And we want to make an abstract layer so that we can take away the innards of the specificity of having to know all of those moving parts and just accomplish your business. I can go on Amazon today for five bucks and stand up an idea, test it, I validate it, and then I spend 50 bucks when I have a few more customers, then I spend $1,500, then I'm Netflix spending millions of dollars per month by delivering one of the world's best video delivery systems in the world. That, that would be the same on the port. If I were to say that we are gonna go do that we are not in the, the business of debris capture or removal or mitigation or recycling of that material. We enable infrastructure for anyone to build not only that, but other types of novel structures, maybe space solar, maybe growing large um, 
uh, amount of food in space for astronauts living in space. Um, sky's the limit. So I, I really want to make sure that that's clear that coming across that we are not necessarily going to dictate all of the different use cases, but we want to enable the recombinant DNA to take hold, that we're the atomic units of that, but the primordial soup is really there and you spark it and off comes your life of your business. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, I, I guess my question was, what does the port actually do for you? That is, if I want to capture orbital debris, I'll send up a satellite that captures orbital debris. Um, if I want to build a structure in space, I'll send up a, struc- a, a, uh, a, a satellite that builds structures. What, what specifically does your port offer to these, these goals? That, I guess that's what I'm asking. Sure. So um, if you wanted to build a spacecraft, we really, uh, we really would shake your hand, high-five you, and uh, slap each other on the back and say, awesome, go for it. What we really are saying is don't do that. Don't do that at all. Build a business on debris removal, and you have a, a spacecraft in space already with robotic arms and manipulators that can deal with that. We also have a provider, uh, two providers actually, that can do the recycling of that material. So you bring that uh, recycler with you as an external payload on the port. Again, like we're, we're, we're talking profound shift in, in building custom bespoke things to accomplish something to infrastructure where you can recombine these things to do it on demand. Oh, oh, so we're okay. not having you go build yeah, yeah. things. And yeah, okay. I mean, so, so basically you're looking at the port as a hub for parts that can, that can be used to build, to build various things. That, 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 that makes sense. So that's not, not parts, services. Well, okay. Services. services. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, okay, so I should ask. If, I should we're ask. just saying we're a depot for um, parts or fuel. Someone else has to still create the functionality business-wise to create the uh, services. And so we're abstracting out the parts and tell us what you're trying to do. And you recombine them, the, those requirements for you to create your business, not um, – uh, we really are starting to shift away from building spacecraft and constellations in a certain way, and uh, it's shifting into services. Even if you build a mega constellation, you're not building the spacecraft for the spacecraft itself. Okay, that's good. That's thank highly you. Con- that's Kantian. Yeah, thank you. Okay, anybody else? Yeah, this is uh, Steve Brody on faculty at ISU. Um, Dan, thanks for that presentation. Fascinating. Um, you know, I've seen uh, over my 40-plus years in this business lots of companies and lots of presentations and lots of, of great creative thought. And, of course, right now we're going through an explosion of all that. Um, so one thing I just did because I find it interesting is to see uh, – some of the key people involved in efforts such as Arcasis. I find it somewhat strange that when I go on the Arcasis website, I don't see any people mentioned. I, I've had to do a bit of searching here, and I did find David Barnhart's name finally, his founder, and you there listed, and a few other people. Um, and this is on a netcapital.com website, I guess, for companies. Mm-hmm. Um is there some reason why the Arcasis website doesn't sort of lay out who your key people of, uh, are? And are these people still involved, like Diane Quick and Fred Tubb and Rahul Rogani and Anthony Dr. Burns? Dr. Rogani. Yes. Uh, Dr. Rogani R-squared uh, is my uh, chief resident nerd. He's a extraordinary PhD from USC. He actually studied under Dave Barnhart. One of the reasons why we don't share – some of that is um, we do think there's a major shift underway and an inflection point. We're not in stealth mode per se, but we do like to tread lightly, um, uh, especially with our team uh, being uh, at the forefront of the shift. 
we like to stay uh, a little bit under the radar. We are slowly getting out um, a bit of a bit more public posturing, but um, we had remained actually in stealth for many, many years. Um, and now we're, we're coming to be more public. Hopefully that makes some sense there. Yeah. So it looks like you know, the names I read, they're, they're, they're still pretty, pretty much engaged. Um, I, I, I guess the name that caught my eye was Diane Quick because integration and test is uh, one of the roles I played on the space station, a uh, space shuttle program, and then later on uh, at some of the missions I oversaw at NASA. Uh, that was a key Diane focus. Quick, yes, Diane Quick on our team um, is extraordinary um, in terms of uh, integration and test, uh, and it's so, critical role for what we do, uh, integration and test, because everything is de-risked on the ground with our digital twin and our robotics on the ground with our protocol units. So we ship out um, something that uh, she was integral in helping define and um, prototype out our applique, which we ship to payload providers and other spacecraft uh, integrators. Uh, so she is actively uh, part of our team, yeah. Okay, great. And then I will ask, if I, if I may have the indulgence to ask, um, a question that many FISO listeners have heard me ask of other presenters, and, and that's because I am thrilled, I, I am fascinated with the developments happening in the 3D printing adaptive manufacturing world. And I just wonder to what extent uh, is that something that Arcasis is looking at, either at, as an application on the ground or perhaps in space? Primarily uh, in space. Um, we're we're kind of agnostic of any location, really, but um, in terms of manufacturing, especially uh, manufacturing um, without human intervention with specific components and assembly, we're, we're, because of our, our, our DNA in um, Space Station Robotics um, and RPO, we're really looking at, our focus will be over, over time, uh, assembly in space. Um, so the, all the thing, all the moving parts from building uh, structures, building truss beams to uh, things that um, uh, move things around the port, um, that would be something that we would be more focused on in, in the, the near future. Okay, thank you. All right, time for one or two more. Yeah, this is Dan Massey. Can you hear me? Just fine. Hey, Dan. Yep. Hey, I first of all, I apologize profusely for having my not having my mute on earlier. That was me. I thought it was. Um, but I've got a question for Dan with respect to um, the propulsive capability and the potential for refueling of these modules. It, mm -hmm. Is that an add-on feature, um, or is there some amount of propellant and what type and thrusters on these these port modules? Yes and yes. Um, again, um, philosophy with the Arcasis port is to be agnostic of any technology and to integrate those technologies as uh, complementary to what we need to do when we need to do it. So in terms of you know, simple ACS type systems or um, things like uh, a lot of bang for the buck like hydrazine or gnarly stuff to just, you know, that are a little bit more toxic, all the way to hybrid uh, uh, thrusters we are agnostic of that. Uh, we are working towards um, the ability to command and control thrusters um, outside of um, the port subsystem and that they interface with our applique and our, our uh, port, almost like a, another payload. So there's two main providers. I can't mention them by name right now, but yes, those are uh, specifically um, – being looked at as um, external propulsive capabilities. The other would be um, refueling. We're working with Orbit Fab um, as well as a company out of Canada 
uh, called Obruta, uh, and we've actually incorporated their uh, notional design uh, into our, uh, our, our, our port module for refueling. Now, creating a depot for refueling, we do have, we will be releasing some concepts around refueling uh, later in the year, so stay tuned to that, um, because I think they are complementary to what Orbifab or other people are doing, but we also think that it is required for what we need to do to go far beyond the Earth very quickly. So um, uh, stay okay. tuned to that as well. So uh, hybrid. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So the PPM that's going to be launched in 2023, is it going to have propulsive capability or is it just it has to, stability? That's going to be more of a wedge. That's, that's the wedge component. So what we're doing is flipping kind of our orientation of uh, sequencing here. If we're lucky, we will build both at the same time. We'll build a module and uh, the wedge, but the wedge will go up. It'll have some things that we're going to be doing for uh, other types of things, getting ready to do full operations. And then that will be resources that will rendezvous and then dock with the port module. So. Uh, okay. That will have to have propulsion, um, and we're working with uh, one of our close uh, allies to, to do that. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Great, great presentation. Yep. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. As always, your feedback is very much appreciated. You can send us a comment or a guest recommendation to podcast at spaceq.ca. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Economy Space. And you can also support the podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. Until next time.